0: Welcome to PwC's Next in Health podcast. I'm Ben Isger, leader of PwC's Health Research Institute. And today, joining me is Trina Tzederos, who leads HRI's Regulatory Center. Welcome, Trina.
1: Great to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, Trina, today, I know we're going to cover kind of a few topics that are related to the pandemic, but in some, maybe some different areas. So vaccine hesitancy, telehealth use, Disruption to utilization and revenue for providers. And if you put it all together, I would say this is kind of the counterintuitive podcast. We're going to bring up a few things that maybe aren't what they seem on the surface. And so to jump into that, I think the first one might be surprising to some of our listeners, and that's around vaccine hesitancy, but in a very certain population the people who actually provide our healthcare, the healthcare workers themselves. And Trina, what have you seen around vaccine hesitancy for healthcare workers?
1: I really like the way that you've characterized the episode as sort of all this counterintuitive facts because that's exactly what we were gonna have. I think if we kind of go back to last year, we heard a lot about vaccine hesitancy and the, the sort of story was that we would have a hard time getting people to take the vaccine And then we had a huge clamor for the vaccine. And and most of the story has been about people trying to get appointments, being frustrated about not being able to get appointments, people pitching in at home, trying to help their neighbors get appointments and all of that. And so what has been lost a little bit in all of this talk about the difficulty in getting appointments and people's long waits to get them is that we do have a lot of folks that are still Hesitant about getting the COVID 19 vaccine. And so, as we vaccinate more and more Americans, the story and the the focus and attention will be to get these folks to go ahead and sign up and, and get vaccinated. And healthcare workers are among those that are hesitant, even though they were among the first in line to get the shot. So, the way we know this is Washington Post and Kaiser Family Foundation did a poll in sort of mid-February to early March of healthcare workers. And they found that 18% said that they don't plan on being vaccinated at all. 12% haven't decided. 19% have scheduled a vaccine or plan to schedule one. And only 52% have gotten one dose. So this is the earliest folks in line. Only half have gotten one dose. And a full 18% say that they don't plan on being vaccinated at all.
0: Well, I think you're bringing up some really interesting points with the data. And and one of the things that I thought was very intuitive insight that I heard a healthcare leader mention is that clinicians and, and healthcare workers, they also live in the greater society. And so they are under some of the same pressures from communications and social media that have disinformation in them. And they are susceptible to that as well just like the general population. So double-clicking into this vaccine hesitancy of healthcare workers, the pandemic hit really, really strongly into our long-term care facilities where people are most vulnerable. Where do we actually see most of that hesitancy?
1: Yeah, I think that's a really good point that looking at some of these facilities that have been hardest hit, you actually find some of the lowest rates of vaccination of folks that say that they've gotten at least one dose. So what this poll found is that for hospital staff, 66 percent of healthcare workers who work at a hospital say that they've received at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. Outpatient clinics, 64 percent doctor's office personnel, doctors, people who work the desk, the nurses, 52% have received at least one dose. When you get to nursing home and assisted care facility, you're down to 50% saying that they've received at least one dose. And when you hit home health workers, people who go into patients' homes and help them with all kinds of various tasks and needs, 26% of healthcare workers who work in patients' homes say that they've received at least one dose. That's a very low percentage compared to the sort of larger universe of healthcare workers overall. And so when we're looking at the folks that might be at most risk of contracting COVID-19, working with the most at-risk folks, people who are so sick, they're sort of bedridden at home, people who are in nursing homes, we find lower rates of vaccination amongst those workers. And so this is an area of focus, I think, as we see the Biden administration spend over a billion dollars working on vaccine confidence. This is one of the areas that we think they will be focusing their attention on.
0: So the question I think most listeners are going to have is why? And the great news is there was a survey question asking these clinicians and healthcare workers, why are they hesitant? What did it find?
1: Yeah. So this is where we see the sort of core worries of folks who say that they are unsure about being vaccinated or they don't plan to be vaccinated at all. 82% of these folks said that they were worried about possible side effects. 81% said that they wanted to wait and see how the vaccines work for other people. So don't put me at the front of the line. I want to be more at the back of the line just to make sure that it's worth the risk, right? That the benefits are actually there. And then 65% say they don't trust the government to make sure the vaccine is safe and effective. And so I think in these areas, more education about the possible side effects, perhaps just people hearing from friends and relatives, their experiences getting the first and second doses of the mRNA vaccines or the first dose of the adenovirus vector vaccine. They will hear you know what happened. Perhaps their worries will be allayed by that. As we see numbers come down in terms of cases and the vaccines sort of having their effect on the population as a whole and the pandemic as a whole, perhaps there'll be more confidence that the vaccines actually are effective. And the trust in the government That is an area that we've seen a lot of concern just sort of over the last few years, sort of the confidence in our institutions overall being shaken to some extent. And so where that confidence will come from, I'm not sure that might be where some of the Biden administration focus might go. But side effects and wait and see are areas of concern for sure.
0: Well, let's switch gears a little bit. There was recently a MedPAC report, and MedPAC is an organization that actually advises Congress about Medicare policies. And some interesting things in the report, something that we've been covering for a while is, quote, the explosion in telehealth because of the pandemic. Could you tell us a little bit about what the MedPAC report found in terms of what CMS has done to increase telehealth use for Medicare beneficiaries?
1: Yeah. So this report is such a treasure trove, Ben. Every year this report comes out and it is just 500 pages of amazing facts about our healthcare system in general. It's not just about Medicare. It's really about the state of our healthcare system. And so one thing that they focused on this year was the effect of the pandemic on telehealth and other parts of the healthcare system and telehealth in particular is so interesting because cms really opened up telehealth services to medicare beneficiaries in a way that had not happened before because people could not go in to see their doctor starting in you know sort of march 2020 and so there had to be a way for clinicians to communicate with medicare beneficiaries and so a lot of regulations and policies were changed to make that happen
0: i don't think a lot of people have described a 500 page MedPack report as a treasure trove, but that's why you're our regulatory central leader, because that's exciting for you. But I want to continue on our theme of the counterintuitiveness. You mentioned a lot in terms of how CMS has expanded the use of telehealth. I would take our listeners back to even just a few years ago, if you looked at data around Medicare usage of telehealth it was trending somewhere between zero and 1%. So not very many seniors were using telehealth in the past. That seems to all have changed during the pandemic. So what do those numbers look like?
1: Yeah, this has changed a lot. So exactly as you said, Ben, back before the pandemic, almost no telehealth was happening. And basically in January and February of 2020, when we were all sort of growing aware of what was coming, The usage was for primary care for Medicare beneficiaries of telehealth was also almost nothing. And then in March, when everything started shutting down, the numbers began to climb. By April, they had hit a peak of about 6.8 million services per month, primary care for Medicare beneficiaries. And that was coming up from zero, almost nothing happening at all. When things began to open up again in the late spring and summer, and doctors started beginning to see Medicare beneficiaries in person again, you saw the number of in person primary care services being delivered climb and climb and climb. And yet, we did not see a complete drop off of telehealth services. The telehealth services stuck around, they've become sort of sticky. The Medicare beneficiaries have tried it, and apparently they like it. And so what we see is a slow, small decline over May and June of 2020 from the peak in April of telehealth services for primary care for Medicare beneficiaries, a very, very steep incline of in-person care for primary care, but not in-kind. Every in-person visit was not a subtraction of a telehealth visit. And so what we expect to see is that there'll be some kind of equalization or stabilization between telehealth and in-person for Medicare beneficiaries. And really, you could probably extrapolate to the general public of these kinds of ways of communicating with your provider. And so this is the story of telehealth over the pandemic. It is an embrace by all of us as patients of the providers who many of whom tried it for the first time. And there will be some kind of equalization over the coming years, because we have all figured it out and gotten used to it.
0: Well, I think that's right. I think it certainly shows the new health economy that we're living in now, where virtual health is, is now an integral part of our health system. I want to talk a little bit about this concept of foregone care. And in our research over the years, we've really come up with two reasons why consumers forego care. One is a price issue. And so sometimes you even see it with people who are insured. They will forego care because maybe they have a high deductible health plan or they have a lot of cost sharing and they're just not able to spend that money out of pocket and therefore they don't get care. Well, the pandemic actually brought up another reason people don't get care. And that's because they just don't have access to it. And certainly last spring, we saw a lot of closures of health systems in terms of asking people that were not COVID positive or, or having some sort of elective surgery to postpone those. So there was this fear of a lot of foregone care. And actually, the MedPack report talks about that for America's seniors. And I was just curious, Trina, what did you find in terms of the rate of care over the pandemic?
1: Yeah, so this was one of the more interesting figures in this report. And what they looked at was the share of elderly individuals who reported foregoing care in the past four weeks. So they were asked this in a poll and from June 2020 to December 2020. And so what you see is sort of the summer all the way through the end of the year. And if you think back, what you had in the summer for a lot of folks was a surge, the summer surge. And then in the end of the year, we had sort of a nationwide surge of outbreaks. And so what we saw is a pattern that sort of defies what you might think. Instead of seeing during the surges a spike or a surge in foregone care amongst elderly individuals, you see actually just a steady decline in the share of folks who say that they had foregone care. In other words, as the pandemic kind of wore on, People did not forego care. They kind of forewent care less and less. And so I think we see that in what we've been hearing from providers that as the pandemic went on, they figured out how to deliver care and make their patients, many of whom are over 60, comfortable with coming in, they figured it out. And we see that in the percentages. So at the beginning, back in April, 25% of Americans who were surveyed by the Census Bureau who were over the age of 80 said that they had foregone care. That's one out of four said this. By the end of the pandemic, in the middle of the height of our nationwide surge over the winter, only 17% of patients over the age of 80 said that they had foregone care in the previous four weeks. And so that's a decline, even though things were demonstrably worse pandemic-wise at the end of the year than they were in April when we had everything shut down. And I think that is a counterintuitive finding buried in this report.
0: Well, there's a very close relationship between this trend of foregone care and the issues around it and what happens to providers in terms of their volumes, the number of people they're seeing, and their revenues. And I think going along with our kind of counterintuitive theme, what did the MedPack report have to say about volumes and revenue disruption for providers?
1: Yeah, I think that the bottom line is that it was pretty brief. So of course, in March, 2020 everything shut down. That was sort of the hashtag. America cancels everything. And we all all the hospitals had to kind of figure out how to cancel non-emergent procedures and services. And we saw the growth of telehealth. But this did not last. And just like we saw with the elderly Americans foregoing care and how that sort of eased down despite the continued surges across the country, we do see that there was a rebound pretty quickly amongst providers in terms of revenues. And so what we saw is that allowed charges, so these are total payments to providers, including beneficiary cost sharing, so Medicare beneficiary cost sharing, for clinician services dropped sharply starting in March 2020. By April, total allowed charges were roughly half what they were in April 2019, But in May 2020, total allowed charges started returning to historic levels. And by June, the allowed charges were only about 5% less than they were in the June of the year before, in June 2019. And that has been the story for the rest of the year. Interestingly, the volume of services did not decline substantially, even though the number of coronavirus cases began to increase rapidly in October. So we saw the surge in October, November, December. But People kept on going to the doctor, going to the hospital, because the healthcare system really did adjust to the pandemic pretty amazingly. So, this is the sort of counterintuitive offering from the MedPack report, also buried right in there, but really fascinating and tells the story of how the providers fared during the pandemic, at least in 2020.
0: What also shows the resiliency of the health system and being able to pivot quickly to virtual health visits, telehealth visits, and even dividing up sometimes their waiting rooms to keep people safe, you know, COVID positive versus COVID negative. And that thinking kind of leads us to the next question that's out there. And that is, did we see a lot of hospitals close because of the pandemic? And what does the MedPAC report have to say about that?
1: Right, because I think one of the the worries was that with the dramatic decline in March and April of folks going into the hospital, going to see the doctor, would we see a flurry of hospital closures? And the truth is, according to MedPAC, there were fewer hospital closures in 2020 than there were in 2019. The majority of the 71 hospitals that closed in 2019 and 2020 were small and located in urban metropolitan areas, even though we hear a lot of worry and concern about rural hospitals the storyline has been that rural hospitals are in trouble. And indeed, there are many that are in financial trouble and, and are having financial woes. But actually, if you look at the hospitals that closed in 2019 and 2020, most are small. 52 had 100 or fewer beds and located in urban metropolitan areas, which I think is counterintuitive to what we've heard most about. Also, Surprising to me, 30 hospitals opened in the United States in 2019 and 2020 combined. We don't hear a lot about hospitals opening. Most were small, fewer than 100 beds. All but three were in urban areas. So we saw fewer hospital closures in 2020 compared to 2019. And we saw almost three dozen hospitals open in 2019 and 2020, which is something that if you asked me before I read this report, I would never have guessed either of those things.
0: Well, that's right, and I think that's the counterintuitive part of this one. We've been hearing for years, and and we've been following this rural hospital closures over time, and it ends up probably a lot of that was around scale and access to you know markets and commercial payers, and it appears that the pandemic wasn't a big factor in that. Let's close on one really important part. We started by talking about the healthcare workforce. Let's end by talking about the healthcare workforce as well, in terms of where are we adding jobs versus where are we shedding jobs?
1: Yeah, so I think that this is another ongoing story because in that March and April period of last year, we saw a huge decline in provider healthcare jobs. Along with many other jobs. And, and I think we can all remember the almost unbelievable number of jobs that were lost during that period and the ensuing economic fallout. And this happened in the healthcare provider sector as well. And we've seen since the sort of slow climb out of that ditch. And we saw in February in the Bureau of Labor Statistics monthly employment situation report that we had a net addition of 19,900 healthcare provider jobs, mostly ambulatory healthcare service jobs. So these are the physician offices, dentist offices, outpatient care centers, medical and diagnostic labs, home health workers, and other ambulatory healthcare services. This group as a whole actually added a net of almost 30,000 jobs in February. Now, What we saw in the hospital area is that we had a net fewer jobs. They lost about a net of 2,200 jobs. And what we see as a ongoing trend is the nursing care facilities continuing to shed jobs. We saw a net fewer of 11,600 jobs in February than January which is sort of the story that has been going on for months and months and months. Every single month, we see fewer jobs in this area of the healthcare provider world. And it is something that I think we'll see kind of show up eventually in terms of worries about this sector. I think these are, of course, our most vulnerable seniors when it comes to COVID-19. We see this huge surge in vaccination of residents of these nursing care facilities, which is a huge positive. We've seen deaths and hospitalizations go down because of this or likely because of this, but we do see a shedding of jobs. And I think I would love to see a report looking into what's behind that and what the outcome and the impacts of this continual shedding of jobs is.
0: Well, today we covered quite a few topics. We walked through vaccine hesitancy, uh, especially with the healthcare workers, telehealth usage, and also disruption to provider volumes and revenues. And we ended, Trina, with you providing a, a bit of an update on what's happening with healthcare employment. So Karina, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Great to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, if you'd like to hear more information about these topics and others, you can find this at pwc.com forward slash HRI. And this has been Next in Health.
1: This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved.